Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Second Samuel chapter four. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, learned that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banna, and the name of the other Rechab. Sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Githam and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon the Beerothites, Rechab and Banna, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banna his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Beerothites, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. A dynasty lies in ruins. One kingdom rises as another falls. After a brutal and bloody civil war, who will stand? The house of Saul or the house of David? Yeah, it's been a pretty wild ride so far uh, in the book of 2 Samuel. We've had warfare, destruction, political intrigue and betrayal, executions and assassinations. We're we're not out of the woods yet, but we we can let out a sigh of relief at the end of this chapter. 
the Civil War is finally drawing to a close. And the outcome by the start of chapter 4 seems pretty set in stone. We had the death of Abner last week, um, and with that, the house of Saul is almost completely diminished. So Israel as a nation is left with no real choice other than to follow David. But the question still stands, what kind of king would David be? Not everybody wants to wait to find out. Uh, Some people decide to do whatever it takes to secure positions of power and influence for themselves. Now, I think, I think these opening chapters of 2 Samuel would make for some great TV, but as a congregation, we've, we've barely had a chance to catch our breath. What difference is all of this, all the, all the murder and all the betrayal, what difference does that make to our 21st century lives? Because I don't know about you, but I think my chances of being involved in a politically motivated assassination are probably pretty slim. Depends on what you do with your free time, I don't know, but... What are we actually supposed to learn from this? Well, no matter what we might think about how relevant 2 Samuel is to our lives, you can't deny that it's a great story, right? And great stories are always built on the foundation of great characters. A story doesn't have to sit us down at the end and just tell us what the moral is. We can see the message played out in the lives of the characters. When we understand them and their motivations and where they're coming from, we can then understand the point that the author's trying to make through their actions. So, who are our characters? Well, we've got Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth from the house of Saul, but they're they're pretty passive in this story. The real focus is on these guys, Rechab and Banna. And they teach us what happens when we play by the world's rules. Having been on Saul's side, they recognize that the tide is turning and try to get into David's good books while they still can. You know, that's understandable. We can, we can understand that motivation, but as we read it, our stomachs turn at their tactics. These are bloodthirsty men. They're, they're willing to take whatever means necessary to secure their positions no matter whose blood they have to spill along the way. But even if we're shocked by their actions, I think what's what's truly chilling is how much of ourselves we actually see in them. On the other hand, we've got David. What's most shocking about this chapter might just be the way that David acts. For all the power that he holds, he doesn't play by the same rules as Rechab and Banna. He sees the kingdom as a gift to be received, not as a trophy to be won. So he's able to see through their plan and eventually turn it on its head. He plays by the true king's rules. And those are our two points for this morning. Don't play by the world's rules. Rather, play by the true king's rules. So first up... Don't play by the world's rules. Our chapter opens with the news of Abner's death reaching Ishbosheth and the rest of Israel. Abner had defected to the side of David, only to be vengefully murdered by David's general, Joab. Now, with Abner out of the picture, Ishbosheth had no hope of securing a future for his kingdom. 
you think back to the start of chapter 3 that we looked at a few weeks ago, it was very clear that Abner was the one who was really pulling the strings behind the scenes of Ishbosheth. Now the counterfeit kingdom that he's established is on the brink of collapse. The stage is set for God's anointed, David, to take the throne. Saul's dynasty is completely falling apart. Ishbosheth has proven himself pretty useless as a leader, and the only other family member that could take the throne is Mephibosheth, who you read about in verse 4. He's this cripplingly wounded child. And Ishbosheth knows all this. Um, that phrase in verse 1, his courage failed. If we translate that literally, it's his hands fell. Hands are often used as a symbol of strength in the Bible. So speaking that way just gives us that sense of all the strength kind of just flooding out of Ishbosheth when he hears about Abner's death, kind of going weak in the knees, his limbs turning to jelly. And the rest of the kingdom recognizes that as well. The end of verse 1 tells us that all Israel was dismayed. Without Abner steering the ship behind the scenes, Israel takes a unanimous vote of no confidence in their false king. This goes beyond just a lack of faith in Ishbosheth's rule. When Abner had defected, he was also trying to broker a peace deal with David and the rest of the kingdom. Uh, that's back in chapter 3, verse 21. I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. David and Abner had parted in peace before he was murdered, but the people of Israel don't actually know that. The news of Abner's death not only signaled that Ishbosheth was vulnerable, but then raised that question of how David had responded to Abner's offer of peace. The people didn't know that David was innocent of Abner's blood. What if, they might have been thinking, what if Abner's death was a warning message from a vengeful new king, kind of warning shot over the parapet? Their future depended on what kind of king David would choose to be. That's a bit of a waiting game, uh, but some folks don't want to wait to find out. Um, and then that's why in verses 2 and 3, we meet these two men named Rechab and Bana. With David's disposition towards them uncertain, they were part of Saul's household, part of Ishbosheth's army, these two men decide to take matters into their own hands. Rather than wait and see if David's going to take down Ishbosheth, they decide to do it themselves. We get this event narrated to us twice. Uh, so in verses 5 and 6, we get a kind of summary of it. They come to his house at noon under the guise of coming to get wheat, and they stab him in the stomach. The author then zooms in on some of the more grisly details in verses 7 and 8. So Ishbosheth was lying on his bed. He was probably resting from the heat of the day when the brothers attacked him. Not only did they kill him, they mutilate him, they behead him, and then they bring their head with them, bring his head with them to present as a trophy before David. It is deceptive, premeditated, cold-blooded murder. 
Rechab and Banna treat Ishbosheth's life as a disposable pawn to be played with however they wish. They see that he is weak and David's strong and they want some of that strength for themselves. This is, this is power politics played according to the world's rules. It's dog-eat-dog. It's trampling other people underfoot so that you come out on top. It's cruel. It's dehumanizing. It's the belief that when you play the game of thrones, you win or you die. As ancient and obscure as the world of 2 Samuel might seem to us, this, this is still the pattern of how humanity seeks power today. You know, we might, we might think we live in a country where our political leaders aren't going to get assassinated in their sleep, but there, there doesn't need to be literal murder for the same sin to be rearing its head. So at this term with the students, we've been going through the Sermon of the Mount uh, in Matthew. And that includes Jesus' teaching about anger and murder. And you can find that in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. You've heard, it, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You know, Jesus taught that we didn't need to be physical murderers to have a murderous heart inside of us. Anger, resentment, bitter words said to tear someone down, it all, it all springs from the same sinful human heart. Think about it. Uh, think about whenever we have an election or a leadership race, getting about one, one a week at this, this rate, but how many former friends will turn on each other at the drop of a hat? How many relationships are destroyed when power is on the line? We might not see literal murder happening in our halls of power, but we see murderous words. We see reputations killed. We see people being used as a pawn in a game and as a means to an end. And this isn't just limited to political power. Think about our own personal relationships, you know, with a spouse or a family member, with a friend or with a colleague. It's far too easy for a relationship to become about exerting power over another person. We treat our actions and our words towards them as weapons that we can use to control them with. You know, a cold shoulder, a bitter comment, a poisonous rumor. These can all be just as destructive as a knife to the stomach. It's it's an uncomfortable and it's a shameful part of who we are. So instead we just try and keep it at a distance, right? We say that's just the way the world works. You know, isn't it so terrible out there? But this event wasn't happening out there. This was a power-hungry, politically motivated murder happening within the kingdom of God. 
God's people are not immune from playing by the world's rules. When God had made his covenant with Israel, he had commanded them to be distinct from the other nations around them. But this is just the same backstabbing opportunism that characterized the kingdoms that surrounded Israel. And worse still, Rechab and Banna hoped to kind of sweet-talk David by claiming to be acting on God's behalf. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life, they say at the end of verse 8. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. So not only were they playing by the world's rules, but they had the audacity to claim that this is what God would have wanted. There was a right way and a wrong way to rule in ancient Israel, a right way and a wrong way to handle power. But Rechab and Banna are trying to find that on their own terms. Has the church really been any different? History is littered with examples of people trying to bring about the kingdom of God through sinful human means. In the 11th century, the Crusades began, a violent and worldly quest to place the city of Jerusalem under Christian control by force. The Pope even offered eternal life and forgiveness of sins to anyone who went to war for him. It was an attempt to establish heaven on earth. And what followed was two centuries of bloodshed that continues to sour people's perception of the church, even today. Once again, this kind of attitude to power and control isn't just expressed in literal violence. The past few years have seen scandal after scandal coming out of churches where everything seems to be going fine. You know, churches where ministries are thriving, where attendance is multiplying, where where the money is flowing. The impressive churches. The churches everyone wants to be a part of. The churches where we kind of just expect and assume that God must be working the hardest in. One look behind the curtain tells a different and much darker story. So many successful churches have been built off the back of the same lusting after power that can infiltrate any earthly institution. Churches can become so obsessed with projecting an image of of excellence and of success that their culture of ministry is one where people are treated like disposable means to an end. They become churches where the manipulation and the abuse of their employees and of their church members is rationalized and justified by the language of building the kingdom of God. This is how the now infamous Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church in Seattle viewed his ministry. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. By God's grace, it will be a mountain by the time we're done. Either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus, but those are your options. The bus ain't going to stop. It's easy 
to criticize men like Driscoll. It's easy to look down in condemnation on men like Rechab and Banna. But we ourselves have the capacity to be just like them. So as God's people, we need to be on guard. We need to constantly be examining our our hearts and the culture of our churches to see if this worldly attitude to power and to influence is creeping in. If it is, we, we need to take serious action. We cannot allow our churches to be rewritten by the world's rule book. We know the damage that this can cause, and yet we kind, of, we kind of still want it at the same time. You know, we want to be impressive. We want to feel influential. We want to feel that, that rush and that ecstasy that comes from power. We're so skilled at rationalizing that kind of desire. So skilled at telling ourselves that we won't make the same mistakes that other people have made. So skilled at telling ourselves that, you know, it can't happen here. Well, so much for being impressive, but the kingdom of God is an unimpressive one. The Bible is the ultimate underdog story. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a tiny mustard seed that eventually grows into the mightiest tree in the garden. That's the pattern for our lives, for our churches, for our ministries. We're going to look small and unimpressive in this world because the glory comes later. And it goes against all our our sinful, worldly notions of what power looks like. And that's the whole point. God wants us to boast in him, not in ourselves. So he completely rewrites the rule book. there's, There's no apparent glory in a weeping man kneeling to pray, not my will, but yours. And yet, that's the path that ultimately leads to life. The, the true king's coronation didn't look particularly powerful or glorious or impressive. It was an execution. It was a crucifixion. And Jesus had every chance to avoid such a death, you know. He said himself, he could have called down legions of angels. He could have taken back the world by military might. Instead, he submitted himself humbly to God's plan and God's timing. Maybe we can find it easy to, you know, imagine Jesus ruling like that. You know, we like probably tend to think of him. He's sat by a lake. He's probably got a kid on his lap. He's teaching his disciples to love their enemies. How could that kind of rule, that kind of kingship, that kind of love be possible in a kingdom like the one we've been reading about in 2 Samuel? Well, it's not, it's not necessarily easy to see. We might not see the full light of Jesus in this specific chapter. But we see, we see little glimmers of him in David. And that brings us to our second point. Play by the true king's rules. So a long time has passed since David was promised that he would inherit the kingdom. 
He was anointed as a young boy all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And since then, his life's been in near constant danger. He's had Saul and then subsequently Ishbosheth fighting to cling on to their own power. It's been a dangerous and an arduous road for David. But now suddenly he finds himself with the kingdom within reach. You know, I can't help but wonder what might have been going through David's head once he realized it was just him and Ishbosheth left on the playing field. No doubt the temptation to act in the same way as Rechab and Banna would have reared its head. David was no stranger to that. He'd, he'd been in this situation before. Uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David had the opportunity to sort of stealthily kill Saul whilst hiding in a cave. And David's men egged him on. They believed that this chance to kill Saul was a gift from God. Sound familiar? Even with the chance to take the throne by force right there in front of him, David actually withheld his hand. He, he knew this wasn't the right way or the right time for him to become king. So when Rechab and Banna come to him and they, they claim to be acting on God's behalf, David recognizes that he doesn't need their help. Verse 9, as the Lord lives, he has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David was by no means a perfect man. You know, we've already seen plenty of that over the last few weeks. But he has got this going for him. He knew that God had promised him the kingdom. He knew that God was faithful and would give him the kingdom at the right time. So he could wait with patient faith for that day, resisting the temptation to see and take the kingdom for himself and by his own strength. He didn't take pleasure in the, the cloak and dagger tactics of men like Rechab and Banna. He understood that to be God's anointed king meant playing by different rules. It was the same for Jesus and, and then some. He could have rode into Jerusalem all guns blazing to take down his enemies. Instead, he rode in on a donkey and he let his enemies kill him. The mustard seed had to go into the ground if it was going to grow into a tree. The true king just simply doesn't look like the rulers of this world. You can imagine how Rechab and Banna might have been feeling when they stood before David. They're probably picturing the positions of power and influence they're about to find themselves in, sort of imagining the, the lavish homes they're about to acquire. It's like when the apostles James and John come to Jesus and they ask to sit on either side of him when he brings his kingdom and glory completely unaware of the kind of king they're trying to bargain with. Uh, if you've been with us since the beginning of our trek through Second Samuel, you might be getting a bit of deja vu at this point. All the way back in chapter 1, uh, a young man had approached David with Saul's crown in hand, claiming to have killed the former king in an attempt to get into David's good books. It's the same kind of situation. And David makes reference to that in verse 10. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and I killed him at, at Ziklag. 
which was the reward I gave him for his knees. How much more when righteous men have killed, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Not only does David condemn Rechab and Banna's selfish actions, he turns their plan on his head and has them executed instead. When David calls Ishbosheth a righteous man, he's not, he's not commenting on his moral standing as a whole. We need to remember, Ishbosheth still was a, a rebel king. But rather, he's pointing out that Ishbosheth had done nothing to provoke the violence of Rechab and Banna. David treats the life of Ishbosheth, his enemy, with dignity, not as something disposable to be used in whatever way suits him. Because, you know, in some ways, Ishbosheth's death was good news for David. You know, the opposition was gone and the kingdom was finally his. But David had faith that God's promises would be fulfilled no matter what. God had delivered him out of every adversity so far, and David trusts that he would do the same in the future. It was God's hand that would place him on the throne, not anybody else's. So in verse 12, the murderers receive a death more brutal and more shameful than the blow they dealt to Ishbosheth, whereas this counterfeit king is laid to rest in peace. This is the type of patient, faithful leadership that Israel needed. They wanted to know what kind of king David would be, and now they had their answer. Saul before him had been the type of king who played by the world's rules, the type of king who who saw and took whatever he wanted. But David waited patiently for what he knew God had promised him. Saul saw David as a threat and tried to track him down to kill him. But David wanted to show grace and mercy to the man who sought his life. And that's why we get the mention of, we've been practicing this all week, Mephibosheth in verse 4. He's the only surviving member of Saul's house. He's a young grandson who flees with his nurse for their lives after the death of Saul and Jonathan, suffering an, an injury that ends up crippling him in the process. His physical condition probably wrote him off as a future king, but by nature of being the grandson of a former rival, he could have been seen as a threat. Most ancient rulers wouldn't have taken that chance. They would have sought his life and just not risk any potential conflict in the future. That was the kind of attitude that Saul had towards David. But instead of future conflict, this verse is actually planting the seed of future grace. I, I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, but David will eventually seek out Mephibosheth, not to kill him, but to show kindness to him. His patient trust in God's timing and God's grace empowers him to rule with grace as well. You know, David doesn't run Mephibosheth over with the kingdom bus. He parks the bus and invites him to get on board. That's just one small instance of grace. 
Imagine that bus stopping again and again to pick up the weak and the wounded. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was good about David's reign. A gracious, gracious, just, patient king. It's the type of leader we all need. And not many kings ruled like David in the Old Testament. Even David himself didn't live up to his own standards. He sinned. He died. But that wasn't the end of the story. Centuries later, the perfect king did come. Like we saw earlier, Jesus didn't gain his kingdom through playing by the world's rules, but by humbly and by patiently submitting himself to the Father's will. And Jesus' perfect obedience means that his kingdom is eternally secure. I know it doesn't always look that way and it doesn't always feel that way. In an increasingly secular culture, it we can feel like the tide is turning against us, and so we kind of get, we get on edge, we get scared, we get angsty, we get hostile. We, we feel the need to take matters into our own hands and defend God's kingdom for him. We always kind of think like that, but every, every generation of the church has felt like that. And here we are. The church still stands. God doesn't need us to defend him. He's the one who redeems our lives out of every adversity, not the other way around. And redeem us, he will. The Bible ends with a beautiful image of the kingdom of God being made perfect on earth. Until that day comes, we live our lives according to the true king's rules, with the sure hope that he will return. Even if the world feels stacked against us, even when we want the church to look and feel more impressive or powerful or influential, we live like mustard seeds. Weakness now, glory later. Jesus is coming again to fully establish the kingdom of God. So that means we can wait with patience. We can pray with confidence. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen.